Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, David Sun. He's the founder of Proof of Beauty, which is a new community-driven crypto art project, very different from any guests we've had on in the past. And this concept is a little hard to wrap your mind around, so I'm going to bring David on and let him talk about it. He can do a better job than I can. Hey, David, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here and, and chatting all things crypto, NFTs, um, so many opinions right now. So happy to hear yours and, and likewise. <laughs> Perfect. So before we dive into the nitty gritty and talk more about Proof of Beauty, I want to hear a little bit more about your background and how you got into crypto. So Proof of Beauty is a crypto art project. So tell me about your background in art and uh, in technology and sort of, you know, like how those two things intersected for you. I've been interested in the arts for a, a while i would say that was my first i guess hobby or, or passion before uh, the computer sciences and and, and 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 crypto but yeah from a very young age i've done traditional arts there was a point in my life before applying to colleges that i wanted to, to go to art school and do entertainment art uh for you know draw the star wars ships uh, that you know was always been a very diehard passion of mine but, you know, I kind of bit the computer science bug um, growing up in, in, you know, Silicon Valley, just the influence was, was there. <laughs> um, everybody was talking about it. So I eventually, you know, took a class, took, you know, another class, went to a few hackathons and that kept on going until it snowballed into me building side projects. And that's kind of how I manifested my kind of artsy design side was designing my own side projects and decided to pursue a career in CS, um, but always wanted to find a way to you know, mix the two. Um, and kind of crypto art kind of became a really natural, you know, wow, it's like two of my favorite hobbies uh, or passions put together. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Silicon Valley? And this was sort of before Silicon Valley was what Silicon Valley is. And I don't know if you were able to sort of see how, Silicon Valley went from, you know, a, a not as well-known place or maybe only a well-known place amongst developers and sort of a place for the nerds. And now it's like the hotspot to be. What was what was that like? Yeah, there's a lot of you know little anecdotes about that. But my, my I mean, my family, my, my parents, like they were the generation that defined Silicon Valley, like David did its name, right? My dad was an electrical engineer. He was playing with silicon, right? Like I, if you give me silicon, I don't even, I, I could tell you it's green, right? That's about it, right? Like it's uh, on, on the PCP boards, right? But like he was part of that generation. And in many ways that was the influence of why I'm, I'm where I am today. But if there's anything, I've really kind of gone out of grown in this area. There, there has been a lot of time that has, that has defined this space. And all this time wasn't just, that space, you know, going up and up and up. There has been times where companies have died. Uh, there is graveyards there, right? Um, my dad is 
we're very representative of an older generation that uh, people kind of kind of forget why it's Silicon Valley, right? There was a time where every startup was Silicon derived and electrical engineering was the hottest job on the block, right? Nobody was pursuing a, a computer science degree in that formality. Everybody was finding ways to build Silicon because that's what's raising money, building businesses and IPOing. And that, you know, eventually started to cool down and, you know, lesser and lesser people joined the space and whatever. And then there was internet bubble and it continued again and again. But, you know, I grew up in a, you know, with a dad that was a few generations older within the innovation cycle. And I think that gave me probably looking back, one of the more sobering thoughts about the temporal, like about the temporal axis of Silicon Valley that like, sure today we're doing, you know, whatever the heck is Silicon Valley doing, it may not be the case soon, right? Or, or not. And, and be mindful of how do you play around within the impermanence of a space um, is very interesting. And, and I think that's something that um, a lot of people outside of Silicon Valley uh, don't quite, I think, have an opportunity to observe uh, simply at a case of not being in there for so long. Um, but, you know, I was born and raised there. So I guess got to see that and hear firsthand what a older generation thought of the newer you know, technological generations. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear too, your, your opinions and your perspectives as we dive deeper into these topics and how, I mean, I've spoken to you in the past before. I do think you have a very pragmatic and a a very, like you said, sobering perspective on all of this, like, especially with NFTs and everybody's super hyped about it right now, but you have a very practical perspective on it. So, okay. You grew up in Silicon Valley. You were sort of always immersed in the tech scene. When was it that you got exposed to crypto and blockchain? You know, when was it? And then how did you get exposed to it? Was it through Bitcoin or was it through more of the art side, you know, through NFTs? This was through 2017 uh, bubble uh, during that time where ICOs were, Going crazy, and at the time I was in college and I was, you know, trying to make a quick buck. So I started to contract, find any way to get make make some money. And I, you know, at the time I, you know, just, I didn't really know much. I bought some random crypto on Coinbase, but I was contracted upon to 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 create a. Well, I guess somebody wanted to build a decentralized exchange, a DEX. Um, at the time, and they gave me Ether Delta, which is you know one of the OGs DEXs in the space. And he's like, hey, can you do this? But Coinbase Pro, can you take these two, combine them together, and create a UX and a product, you know, and, and write the front end for it? So I did. Um, and at the time, I uh, read, started to read the white papers, the Bitcoin white papers, the Ethereum white paper. Uh, read into other random cryptos that do not exist anymore. Um, that's also when I read the Xerox white paper, which I guess I'll allude to other conversations later. But that's where I really got exposed was um, learning that there's this whole financial frontier that that blockchain was enabling, and I really bit into that bug. Um, but then it was a little bit, a few months into that kind of um, exposure, I started to hear hear about CryptoKitties. And, and I think that's what really made me kind of go from this would be cool to work in to like, I have to find my career in crypto was looking at CryptoKitties and, and realizing kind of this thing can be fun and, and can be approachable and can be lighthearted. You know, there's so much gravity to, to, to DeFi for a lot of folks and to the ideas of finance that like that was a little bit of a turnoff for me. It was 
like I still to this day don't enjoy deeply trading, you know, and, and milking the most amount of money out of what I what I can do investing. But I do deeply love, you know, the more uh, carefree but slash uh, experimental nature of NFTs. And at the time, it was so undefined because we literally just had CryptoPunks and CryptoKitties and like super rare barely existed. And ENS was was one of the more obvious applications that kind of started to come to form then but you know it was very unknown so at the time i actually did create a generative art side project then called we art um never took off and i like to think back it's i was a few years early and a few years too impatient about building those but that indirectly sparked my passion for the generative art space this idea of using code to produce uh, forms of art that kind of continued as a side hobby, uh, entering my career into crypto. Yeah. So when you first got exposed to CryptoKitties and that got you excited, did you like understand what that was all about right away? Like breeding kittens online, this makes a hundred percent sense in my head. Or was it something like you're like, people actually, actually pay for this stuff or like, where were you there? And then how did you go about learning a little bit more about it? And over time, learning more and more and maybe like if you can call out some of your favorite go-to sources for learning in the space as well. It would be very disingenuous if anybody joins the NFT space above a certain age um, that doesn't like ask the WTF question about NFTs. Um, and I definitely did. And I, I, and I think that it's a very healthy part of our capacity as NFT um, industrialists to continue to have to ask that question is what, what, what in the heck are we creating? Um, I think that question is still incredibly unsolved. Um, and what we have kind of gone to today is a pretty good idea, but not good. I don't think good enough or, or there's more to define and more to kind of explore. I'll table that for now. But yeah, like I, I personally, I loved uh, the kind of approach of grokking what the blockchain is used for. You know, I was part of the blockchain club at the time. Um, and how people were able to wrap their head around CryptoKitties. This idea that it's, you know, it's a tradable asset. Um, people were talking about it with like a breath of like, how the hell does this happen? But I, I, I keep on coming back to this idea. It's like, don't discount these dumb things because you're spending brain power on them. Usually more than you do spend on the things that are too smart and too, not too smart, but too brilliant that you can't just you know, briefly think about it on a walk. It's more like maybe a sit down kind of a deal. NFTs has this playful, almost comical nature to it that makes people just think about it, question it, get angry about it, you know? And that's what we did. And I did that. And I, I came to a point where it was just like, whoa, you know, there's a lot of more you can explore beyond this, right? And it's not financial in nature, meaning that I have, you know, I could do whatever the heck and there's no precedent that I had to, you know, root grade myself on. It was just like, I just wanted to create cool shit. And this was a very playful medium. Um, and I never really think much harder beyond like it's, you know, implications on crypto, on culture or on digital media. I just was, this is cool. <laughs> and, and seeing it do cool things with crypto kitties, I thought you know, it'll be fun if I tried. Yeah, for sure. So now that, you know, you're a few years 
down the line and you've learned a lot more about it and what the implications of NFTs are, how would you explain NFTs to somebody like your parents or your grandma or something in a way that gets them excited about it? Uh, that I've continued to have a interesting like um, thought on just in the general blockchain context. But I think that especially with today's world, with well NFTs are and its prior uh, um, metaphors that are very similar. What do we call it? Like trading cards, you know, like Yu-Gi-Oh, baseball cards, uh, game assets, you know, within uh, those. It's like if I were to explain it, which I'm not going to give a explanation at the capacity that I don't have a good one anymore. Um, but non fungible tokens don't imply it's on the blockchain. Just, just, just saying NFT, I don't think strongly implies it. It's just a representation of something on a ledger that is unique among each representation of it. To spark the excitement, I don't think the blockchain part does. Like, it's more of the matter that there's this vibrant ecosystem. There's a community of people who are absorbed by these things, right? Like, I think like what like this has been something like a, a point of like friction with my dad when I was growing up was I played a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh when I was younger. He couldn't fathom, you know, why these pieces of cardboard had value. And some of them would have hundreds of dollars of value, right? And some don't. But then if you were entrenched within a circle, its community, you, you know, understood its rules, its norms, that part of the NFT crusade of convincing people it's worthwhile to invest in, doesn't really come in a form of explanation. It almost comes in a form of of experiences. And I, I guess I've been not very bullish on the capacity to explain NFTs, but more or less, I, I'm very, very bullish on people being able to experience it and fuel the, the energy of, you know, seeing it in the metaverse or, or selling it for a profit. And then you start less and less asking why what is an NFT more so you just like know what it is and it becomes more indescribable, right? Like it's, I, I, I think it's very hard for people to explain why does a Yu-Gi-Oh card, a baseball card have value, right? But it somehow does, right? And it's almost the experience of it that created this weird nebulous story in your brain and everybody else's brain that enjoys a thing. That That's where I'm at a point in my headspace is like, I've kind of think it's not wasteful, but, um, not the highest ROI to go out and try to explain this technology to everybody is more or less like, I think it's show more is more useful here. And I think, you know, heads down, you know, build ways to show it. Um, yeah, I, I totally know what you mean. And I agree 100%. I think when I first heard about NFTs, I definitely did not understand what was going on. And as I started to learn more about it, research more about it, it was like one day it just clicked for me. And then all of a sudden I was like done comparing NFT art to traditional art, which is like sort of where I had started mentally and realized that it's it's so much more than that. And I think like what you kept harping on, you know, the experience in the community, like the community part of it is a really big draw for me. And what makes me so bullish on NFTs is the long term capacity for community, like not not just within creators of NFTs, but also within consumers of NFTs and, you know, as and curators too. And I, I think this 
creates a, a very vibrant ecosystem where everybody can get involved. You know, it's not just professional curators, museums, really rich people who can afford expensive art. It's it really opens it up to anyone and everyone to get involved. And I think that's something that really excites me. So I, I 100% um, agree with you. And like you said, the best way to, ex- to learn about NFTs is to go out there and experience it. So if you haven't played around with it yet, you know, go out and buy some art. Or if you're an artist, go out and mint some art as an NFT or, you know, go play around with crypto kitties or anything like that. Experience the ecosystem, get on crypto Twitter, and I think you'll start to understand the value of NFTs. So, all right, let's move on and talk a little bit more about Proof of Beauty. You recently left your job. I want to say it was back in March of this year at uh, you were working at Zero X Labs as a front end engineer, and you just left there to work on Proof of Beauty full time. Starting with that, how hard or easy was that decision? It was easy and hard. <laughs> Creating this uh, proof of beauty as a you know it has been an idea that's been itching on my head for years. So, you know, I was at a place mentally where I didn't quite know what exactly, you know, what career progression meant, uh, and more or less, I knew more clearly was what I wanted to do. Like I just wanted. I know what it is I wanted to spend my time on, but I didn't know what that would mean. Um, and, you know, if that meant, you know, what, you know, am I a senior fund engineer? If I'm that or this at whatever institution. So when Proof of Beauty started to grow, I was pretty much mentally ready to want to pursue this full time. I, you know, I think I would definitely have regretted it if I didn't try to you know, take all these wacky ideas I had in my head for years and, uh, um, find a way to do it for a living. Um, but beyond that, just like uh, Xerox is still uh, my first home in crypto and, and ever fortunate to have been there. And I was on a very good team and, and um, we were doing some really good stuff. I thought really, really groundbreaking stuff that, you know, I, I, I got into crypto because I first bought into the open finance DeFi narrative before the NFT narrative, right? And Xerox is very much so about um, the open finance, just tokenized world, value flowing freely world. And I really still strongly believe about that. What you want to do sometimes is supersedes your ideals. And, and I think that superseded my head. I was like, I wanted to explore what NFTs can do. And I say a few goodbyes and, and leave an organization I didn't, um, that I'm you know, very, very happy to be, to be part of. If you have been part of, I guess, past tense now. Yeah, I think a lot of people can probably relate to that sentiment is sort of bittersweet. So you said that you've been working on the idea of Proof of Beauty for a few years now. So how did you originally get that idea? Take us back to when the idea first spawned. Was it the same idea that it is today? Or how did it develop over time? And then talk a little bit more about, you know, what is Proof of Beauty? Proof of Beauty, I mean, or Proof of Beauty Studios that um, came had so many names before it. It was just this fundamental idea that, uh, you know, with NFTs, we got to experiment with the very medium that is capturing uh, um, this art and using that as part of its art process. And what I really kind of want to mean by that is, if you know, Banksy can 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 you know place a graffiti you know or, or a piece of work 
on a on a public wall, right? In many ways, his art is propelled by the very medium it's placed on, right? And he really is one of the few artists that I think genuinely uses the medium as part of its artwork, right? I think a Banksy piece, if it was not on the Israeli border wall and it was on something else, this value, what it's trying to symbolize isn't as complete, right? It's the it's the actual final act of where you placed his art, uh, where Banksy puts his graffiti pieces, where, wherever he puts it on a public wall, that's part of the statement, right? And I found that to be absolutely um, interesting, right? And I think that blockchain and, and, and NFTs was this very, very expressible metaphorical public wall, right? Um, and, and how you put it on the blockchain was very expressible and also part of the art. And so at the time, I, you know, this, this came into form of so many different ideas. I had something called the fine wine concept, um, which was you had this NFT that changed, that grew in value every time it was transferred. So it, you know, it starts very, you know, underdeveloped and it had to be, you know, used. It has to be given to so many different owners before it finally grows. Like it gets a patina, right? Um, I had some other ideas. Some One was called the Olympic Torch, was just like this idea that, you know, this token has no value, and but, you know, it had to be transferred like an Olympic Torch to different people. And the very people that held it gives it value, right? Or held it. I had all these kind of ideas and I was kind of cherry picking among them. Which one did I think could be done? Um, and that uh, was um, at the time in the form of, you know, how do we capture Ethereum history uh, meaningfully? I think Ethereum has a really, really rich history, right? From the DAO hack, from all these forks, from DeFi, the emergence of, you know, NFTs. And I wanted to find a way to express that beyond just going on Etherscan and seeing the gas, where it was sent to and from. I, I thought there was more we can do. And I drew a lot of parallels to, uh, you know, what Banksy was doing, what a lot of artists do, which is critiquing events, right? We, we create works upon the very thing that has happened, right? I think some of the most famous paintings are like the constitution being signed, uh, the French revolution, right? World War II uh, photography, uh, uh, the Vietnam war and, the, and how pivotal uh, uh, photojournalism was to that, uh, uh, to that conflict. Art in many ways is so strongly tied to history. And I thought that this should be the natural first thing to do. Uh, uh, for Proof of Beauty as a studio um, that was interested in creating, you know, uh, blockchain art uh, or crypto art, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, that, you know, in between it came into forms like, what if we did a coffee book? And then that became, what if we just, just did NFTs? And then, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then eventually half a year ago, it was like, I can muse about this forever, but I got to ship a form of this idea and I took the simplest form of it was just let's create NFTs deriving it, deriving um, its visual look from transaction data. So, you know, you feed it a, a transaction hash and then we go on the blockchain and take the gas price, the data, who it was sent from into. And then we take all of this and that controls color, controls composition, controls uh, complexity and whatever, right? Um, um, and, and so I wanted to create a way to uh, visualize Ethereum history in a artistic way, not a visualization way, not like through graphs. I want to do it artistically. So yeah, and that became the first thing that was shipped and, and, and somehow that 
grew to a point where it's like, okay, you know, this project has legs and not just legs, but I think proof of beauty as a creative exploration, um, this idea of exploring what NFTs are can actually become my full-time job. And so I, I pulled the trigger and, and so yeah, hash is the, what I just described this history thing is called hash and, and that's our first project. So yeah, hopefully that explained it. Yeah, very cool. I I think it's super cool. And I'm sure people are wondering, so how does it work? Like, how are you able to take a bunch of boring transaction data and turn it into visually appealing art? How does that work? The first few steps, I think, is is rather uh, understandable, uh, right? Is, you know, obviously we have a, we take a hash, which is a identifier of a transaction and then we, we, we go and call, we make a transaction data call and get all that information from the public blockchain through our RPC nodes or whatever. We're, we're just automating what we do on Etherscan, right? <laughs> um, we take all that data and then this is something that uh, I guess I took out of the books of CryptoKitties um, was we convert that to what we call a gene. And a gene really is just visual, like, like they're just like little knobs that you could turn and twist to get you different visual output, right? So um, the gas price will, con- will will control the texture that you would see on the artwork. So if you have a higher gas price, it would turn the knob more metaphorically to the right, and if less and more to the left, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the addresses control the colors. So if you fed this address, it would always give you this color palette. And then this address will give you that color palette, right? So there's a point where like, if you gave me a transaction, like a, a artwork, I can, if it's like a famous, you know, contract, I can usually guess which contract, you know, was involved with this transaction because the artwork has that color. And I know because I, because you know, I, I've looked at so many artworks and it's like, oh, this color, that's Uniswap or this color, that's Compound. But yeah, so we have this gene and this gene um, is then read by a, a, a algorithm that produces via you know uh, shaders and, and and WebGL stuff a piece of art, um, but there's like just it's pretty much like a huge pipeline of transforming data back and forth, back and forth until it's something that is visually uh, appealing. And there's obviously a lot of complexities with this, but I'm just wondering, do you ever get a transaction based on all the data involved that turns out to be visually not appealing? Like you get colors that clash, you get designs that clash. Does that happen? It doesn't just happen. It's something we design. I have to design around. This is purely within the capacity as a generative artist. Is usually what happens when you're a generative artist is you know you produce like a thousand iterations, right? So you have a thousand images, and then from a thousand you choose like ten, and then you put those ten on Instagram because those are the best ten. But in our problem, we effectively outsourced the curation part, right? I gave you guys the algorithm and everybody's just hitting it, hitting it, hitting it. And then among this, people will choose which ones are worth either visually or historically appealing enough to mint, right? And that's why we call it proof of beauty as a studio is the proof. There's like a, almost like an odd consensus system where people are curating and, and I provide the thing to curate. So with that, as a generative artist, the problem doesn't become of how do I choose? But more so is how do I create an algorithm that creates enough good output, right? So uh, I had like this very loose metric in my head is if this algorithm can, or this, this generative art 
um, can create a thousand outputs. And if I could deem 20 to 30% of them to be good, then I think this algorithm is good enough, right? And I would try to push that what is good enough as high as I can, right? But then some of these algorithms is like, you just simply, it's hard to push that barrier without making it look contrived or whatever. And this is purely artistic, but yeah, there's like this little threshold that I grade my work off of. So like before I release the next season and even the season before it, I looked at like tens of thousands of these outputs and I thought, okay, I guess out of all of them, X percent was good enough to look visually good enough to, 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 to be minted. And I was like, okay, hit the, hit the, hit the bar. I think it's ready to go. Um, so there is, yes, some that I still think are absolutely horrendous. You can't design for all cases because um, it's visual, right? It's not graded upon a, a definitive output, right? It's, it's all a matter of opinion, so. Yeah, 100%. So you alluded to some things. People actually get to vote on which designs they like best. Take me back to uh, your Genesis project, Hash, like take me back to the very beginning. How does the process work for new projects? Like, so you create these algorithms you, or, or I guess the first step would be you choose a category. So in the case of hash, it's sort of like historical transactions on Ethereum. And then you create these algorithms and then you generate all of these pieces. And then what happens next? It gets pushed out to the people and the people vote on it. And then how many pieces come out of that for hash? Uh, walk me through that whole process if you can. In many ways, it's the algorithm is just kind of placed out, placed out there publicly. Uh, you know, pob or hash.pob.studio, go under. You know, it's in the source code. And what happens really is people look for hashes, transaction hashes. People go on Etherscan and they find you know Uniswap's first transaction and whatever, and then they would try to copy and paste it in, and and then on the fly because the algorithm is sitting in on your computer it generates it there, right? Theoretically, you know, since the algorithm is there, all one, is it billion or trillion? I keep on forgetting. Every single transaction on Ethereum blockchain has a visual version of it that exists. It's just a matter of, has it been seen before? Once somebody sees it and they're like, okay, this one looks visually appealing or not, they vote in quotes by minting it. So once they see the output, they're like, okay, and you know, it doesn't exist as a, token yet so then they hit the mint button and they pay you know some amount of ETH and then we then create that token so in many ways there's no voting system more or less the voting is done through minting right you affirm you're pretty much proving that this is not just that this is worth tokenizing because you paid you know me some amount of ETH and then you hit the mint button you paid gas fee right so in many ways, that's where you're affirming its quality, right? You're, you're giving it more life, right? Um, beyond just an output of an algorithm. That, and why it's designed like this was, you know, history is so, I guess, loosely defined for so many people, right? Uh, who's to say what part of your personal history is worth tokenizing or worth capturing in art? Uh, Maybe for larger projects like Uniswap, there's maybe more of a governance that would be involved, but I didn't want to make any of those calls, right? I, I wanted an open blank slate and people, if they thought it was worth it, then should have 
didn't, they should just mint it, right? Because history could be so personal to so many people. And, you know, uh, in retrospect, some of the most successful tweets, you know, people enjoying the artworks are about personal history above anything else. Um, other artists minting their very first transaction on the blockchain, um, other um, communities or, or even other people say, hey, this is my first transaction buying an NFT, right? Like it's as simple as it gets, right? And if there was some kind of thing that they had to ask me for permission or community for permission, I think it would kind of dilute the experience um, that hash can provide. So I pretty much had a very open for all and, and let people decide uh, blank slate kind of a mentality was let them control the mint button um, more than anything else. Very cool. Very cool. So how many NFTs total were created from the hash project? Yeah. So we're currently season zero. Um, season zero is we, we just kind of define uh, blocks of supply. So the first season was about 2,555. Um, and they have all been minted about a month ago at this point. If you go on open seat, there's 2,555 of them and that's season zero. Um, but we took the approach kind of like, uh, I guess, fashion seasons, you know, how spring season, spring collection, winter has their own collection. We kind of did that, um, but for uh, hash. So we have a season one planned for, I guess, as of recording in a week, but hopefully at the time of hearing it's already launched. Uh, but season one, you know, we're going to open the doors again and say, hey, we are going to allow another X amount of mitts. Um, so go and do what you did with season zero. It's a new visual art style. Uh, uh, we rebuilt a lot of the product around it, this, the website, to be thematically about personal history, but celebrating your history on the blockchain. Um, and we built a pricing model that is very accommodating to people to mint their own history. You know, every kind of like, instead of like, you know, spring collection, we did personal history collection, right? So every season has their own theme. Um, and every season will increase the supply of artworks um, available that had been minted. Um, and our also, hopefully we're hoping to create is for early supporters is kind of like, um, you know, if you own uh, an OG pair of Jordans, it has more value because it's old and it's one of the original collections. We hope that this, seasonal model will kind of create tiers of um, artistic value where season zero will be valued higher because it was original season. Subsequently, they will lose or not lose, but have lower value because they're later seasons. But yeah, so that's how supply is defined uh, with hash. How long did it take for those 2,555 NFTs to be minted in your season zero? And then what, how fast do you expect it to go in season one? Just so people know, like, if they're listening and you've yet to launch, like, how much time do they have to go and get this done? Yeah. Uh, season zero, we la I launched it at um, late January. And I think early March is when we sold it all out. February was mostly slow. I think it's late February where, you know, communities started to form. Um, that's where really we kind of hit a growth spurt. Um, there was kind of like crypto influencers talking about Proof of Beauty. Um, the key thing is uh, the Proof of Beauty Season Zero had a a pricing model that was interesting, I guess, to say the least, is um, at some point the price was growing for every subsequent mint, right? So if you minted uh, the, the 1,000th piece, it would have been priced at, let's just say 0.5, right? And then the 1,010th piece would have been priced at 
right? So it was growing in price. Um, and there was the main reason why we designed it like that was we wanted it as, as the project grew, we wanted people to put more gravity to what they were minting. We didn't want people to just mint random history. We wanted people to mint the right history and the pricing was designed to give it more weight. Um, and obviously that works for like capturing Ethereum history at large, right? Just the biggest moments of Ethereum history. How do we tokenize that? This was the best pricing model, I thought, to do that. But indirectly, um, obviously, as a price increases, lesser and lesser people can buy it. Fortunately, it sold out extremely fast in the first two weeks of March. It kind of just hit a spurt. Everybody kind of like um, enjoyed the project, loved the project, and, and kind of aped in. So we sold out way faster than I thought. I was planning, I was targeting mid-April when we sell out, but came about a month and a half earlier. So that definitely kind of like caught a, uh, a windfall. Uh, season one, we have made a lot of decisions around it such that it would last a lot longer um, than a month before it sells out, mainly to give myself some sanity. You know, when season zero sold out, everybody was like, when's season one? When's season one? I'm like, well, I, I don't, I have 24 hours a day. I, I have a life to live and I couldn't, you know, build it fast enough because um, I was targeting mid, mid-April mid was when season zero would sell out and season one is supposed to come out in late April, right? Like that was that was initial planning. And so when it sold out a month early, that definitely threw me by surprise. But season one is designed to last a lot longer. We have enlarged supply from 2,555 to a higher number by a bit to hopefully get more people into the community um, and also give it more time to let people to join. So uh, hopefully it'll last longer than a month. Um, hopefully a little longer for two, three, uh, I'm saying this, this is a very good problem to have, but yeah, I hope it lasts longer. Um, it gives me time to breathe. There's a lot of other things that I got to work on internally um, to, to, to create a, a operational studio. Uh, and two, is there some other ideas that we want to work on that, uh, that are very interesting and they would take a lot, lot more time than just releasing a new season. And so we want to work on those ideas and we don't want to leave our community with nothing for like four months and then be like, Hey, we're back. Uh, we want to give them good con. We want to give them something to, 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 to play around. So, um, hopefully it's longer. <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. Do you know much about like, who are the people that minted those first 2,555 from your season zero? Are they mostly, I assume they're probably more so crypto natives than the people that just jumped on that NFT bandwagon in the last couple of months because they, you know, had to have some sort of transaction history or at least be able to have a basic understanding of how this project works. But moving forward, I guess, like, what's your goal or vision in terms of building the community around proof of beauty? Is it that you want to reach the mainstream and the masses with proof of beauty and, you know, sort of make NFT and blockchain and crypto more accessible to the quote unquote normies? Or is that not really part of the vision? And you're happy to, you know, sort of keep it within the crypto community? I think Proof of Beauty Studios will grow with the community. I'm very bullish that NFT as a space will grow, um, uh, you know, exponentially, and and more and more people will be within this space. Um, and I think there's a lot of moving parts before that actually happens. 
But yeah, proof of beauty metaphorically has always I've always looked at it as like a mirror of the very medium it's 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 creating on, and that medium is blockchain. Um, and we live in a world where currently most of blockchain culture is very housed within crypto culture. Um, and so a lot of the projects we have planned is 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 very much so about commentary about about our culture, right? But I, I kind of want to bring it back to the Banksy metaphor is I think some Banksy pieces are contextually more narrow than most people would, would realize. Like some of these are commentary on political climates, right? And, you know, I don't frankly have a deep understanding of the geopolitical environment, but I think fundamentally what Banksy did well was he created good art, right? Like something that visually could still stand on its own, that was powerful enough to, to house commentary. Uh, um, even for somebody that's in fully rock the thing. Um, and that's kind of within the interest of Proof of Beauty is that we want to create, first of all, is just visually or, or sensorily appealing works. Um, and we believe that blockchain, using the blockchain and tokenizing will elevate um, the experience, um, will enable a, um, the community, the crypto community to see uh, uh, the blockchain in a new way. And if that means more and more people join it, then we will create projects that reflect the current community and its, and its headspace. Um, and, you know, maybe in a few years, that just means creating things that seem as mainstream. I guess today is maybe not the case, but I guess there is a little bit more of a reactionary element to it. But I also do see this as an opportunity for Proof of Beauty to kind of push the narrative of what NFTs are. And I think that will also help NFTs join the mainstream and again, like what, what Banksy has done with, with public arts and, and putting these as public pieces, not as, you know, canvases hang, hanging on somebody's wall. I think he has elevated that as a medium, right? Um, and there's some amount of sophistication to fully, I think, grok his works. I think the same, at least I hope, and that's what I aspire for Proof of Beauty Studios, is to create work that is complex enough for, for folks to understand, but also powerful enough for people to kind of feel why it exists. And I think that's the strategy when it comes to doing things that could qualify as popular or, or, or as mainstream. It's, it's still just creating good art. And I think good art reaches people. <laughs> yeah, I think like as blockchain grows into the future as well and more and more transactions take place on the blockchain, then you just have more and more options for different themes and, you know, different projects that you can create on Proof of Beauty. So definitely... The options are endless, I think, out there. And speaking of the future, where do you envision NFTs being in, say, 10 years? I think, I mean, the big problem with today is people too closely affiliate file extensions to NFTs. Like people say, oh, it's just a PNG file. It's a JPEG file. Um, um, And I think that in 10 years from now, that will not be the case. what an NFT is and the verbs associated with an NFT uh, are going to be so much more diverse than what we have today. Um, right now, it's mostly mint, buy, and sell. You know, obviously, invest is one of the verbs, but that is kind of undermined by the idea of just buying and selling right now. Um, but I like this idea of, you know, NFTs starting to be an investment vehicle for people and culture. Um, I like this idea that people... You know, this is me co- coming from a very DeFi mindset is 
I love those projects that allows you to take loans out with NFTs, right? I, I love the projects that you know provide that, that that you know creates index funds for NFTs. We're really working on how do we expand the verbs that are associated with this token. And I think that in ten years, buying and selling will still be very important. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if most people will be interacting with NFTs not through those two verbs, if not actually everybody. Uh, and maybe most people will be doing, will be interacting with NFTs in a way that they don't even know there's like a a, a token representation behind the scenes. Um, and I don't frankly have a full idea what those new verbs will be um, as the metaverse grows, as crypto voxels. Uh, Decentraland grows. I think they are part of it. I like to think Prove of Beauty is part of that direction. But I think that eventually we're going to get to a point where the word is not more synonymous with just, you know, with, with, with capturing culture, right, than capturing an, a file extension. And we're, we're not at there yet. And I think in 10 years, we're going to start to see uh, so much more exploration. Because right now we're, we're at a place where I think we're, we're, we're still working on building rails uh, you know, like uh, OpenSea and all these exchange protocols, we're finding ways just to tokenize, right? We haven't really had the time or the opportunity to really go further. And, and that's where I'm personally very interested and bullish that uh, we're really going to start seeing a Cambrian explosion of, of, all of, of that um, in a few years. Um, and that will lead to some really insane stuff that hopefully will be cool. I'm super excited too. It's sort of like in the early days of the internet or when the internet just came to be, nobody could imagine, say, social media. You know, like the whole concept of social media was beyond what anybody could comprehend. So I, I think we're at a stage where we can't even comprehend all the things that can come out of NFTs and blockchain. And so I'm very excited to see the different projects that, you know, push the boundaries. And I think that's exactly what Proof of Beauty is doing um, really excited about that. So last thing I know you had mentioned earlier that f your initial foray into the crypto space, like, you know, like being serious about it and working full time in it was through Zero X Labs. Very quickly, I guess, do you want to talk a little bit about what Zero X Labs is and share maybe some highlights from your experience there? Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, are, have a misunderstanding of, of what Zero X uh, um, labs and, and Xerox at large is, and that's you know I don't think to the fault of really anybody beyond just the sheer velocity of ideas in the crypto Twitter space and and things getting diluted to the point of confusion. But yeah, like uh, Xerox, you know, labs is you know where we have a Xerox protocol and, and Xerox Labs is the main caretaker of the Xerox protocol and, and the Xerox protocol. Um, in many ways, I guess, um, with the current version of it and its current iteration is very comparable to, I guess, Uniswap slash one inch. Um, we create a protocol system that allows you to buy and sell things um, decentralized, right? It's a DEX. Um, that's as far as people need to know about it, right? There's a technological you know, ecosystem that is making your DEX experience hopefully the best with the Xerox protocol. Um, but I think for most people, you just need to know that it's just like Uniswap. It's just like one inch. Um, and you can use Xerox um, through matcha.xyz. 
um, which is what something that I've been working on or worked on for about half a year. Um, but it's a, you know, the Robin Hood of DEXs. At least that's what we hope to build. We're hoped. That's what Xerox Labs is. Uh, if you dig a little bit into the blogs and everything, you'll realize that Xerox is deeply, has a deeply ingrained uh, vision and, and culture about things getting tokenized, um, everything getting tokenized. Um, and so from the beginning, there's always been a fairly strong NFT presence internally. I think Will Warren loves NFTs, uh, the CEO of Xerox uh, Labs. There was a ton of people internally that loved Xerox, uh, that loved NFTs. And Xerox Protocol was the first, one of the first protocols that supported non-fungible tokens way back when 720, the ERC-721 spec came out. And, and you know, the Wyvern Protocol, which powers OpenSea, uh, so many other protocols has been inspired from the Xerox uh, uh, design. So, so yeah, so Xerox has definitely had a very big presence in the space. Um, my personal experience as joining as Xerox was, you know, during 2017, we were at a, a blockchain industry that quite hasn't quite found, I guess, product market fit, right? Like it was kind of still figuring itself out. And so it made sense to me to join a organization that was, that had a very strong opportunity to understand how the space is moving right it had a great vantage point to see how blockchain and, and crypto was 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 um uh moving around and, and growing and developing so that was one of my big things why i joined xerox labs and i'm thankful to say that gave me that experience you know i was able to see how i was able to see uniswap go from an idea to v1 um and then all of that and i saw the nft boom uh, um and then you know the projects between those booms, like God's on the chain and whatever. And yeah, so I'm ever thankful of that experience, right? And, and also working for a company that's not venture capital backed or used to not be the case. Um, that was a very novel experience, just understanding, you know, as a company, what are, what was our incentives? You know, what was keeping us motivated, which was very different than a VC backed company, I think. Um, and that was a very, very, fresh experience and something that I really uh, wanted uh, when I, you know, decided to, to, to start a career in crypto. Yeah. And I'm sure that probably taught you a lot about how you're running proof of beauty now as well, too, because you guys aren't venture backs. And I don't know if that's from our past conversations. It doesn't sound like that's something that you're seeking, but I could be wrong. Yeah, um, as of now, um, I've chatted with a few folks, and I think we've all kind of come down to consensus is that as a studio format, there's not a lot about this that is venture backable, or at least aligning with venture capital uh, returns that they would want. And that's been something that I've been personally very interested in from the beginning was I don't think I would like to run a venture backed organization. That's just not my cup of tea. Uh, and I wanted something a little bit more free form exploratory, uh, a lot more creative control within the capacity of what I wanted to do. Um, and Proof of Beauty Studios, because we directly sell our, 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 our product, in quotes, to our community members, um, and they help to capitalize you know, our capacity to continue to create. We're in a space where it just doesn't make sense, slash it doesn't need to. We don't need uh, um, venture capital. You know, I think in many ways it's, on the same formula of what, why I joined Xerox, I'm very happy to work in a way that is kind of also 
undefined what it means to have well, what incentives are um, to to work, and that's been pers- a personal interest to to discover and and and, and hopefully push forward. So, yeah, like I, I guess I report to myself and only myself and. <laughs> If I don't like it, it's all up to me to figure that out and, and obviously react to the community. But um, the relationship has is so much more like an artist to um, the people that appreciate art than that of a product team creating a product for a, a base of consumers. So, Yeah, for sure. And it, it almost feels like to me that without the venture backed, your incentives are almost more pure and almost more simple. Right. Because your incentive is just that this is what you're passionate about and you really want to make this work. And that's basically it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that was one of the things for me was just, yeah, like um, tr- I've been very adamant to be very transparent to to the Proof of Beauty community. Um, and, and one of the big things to me was like, this is a creative vessel. And, and, and I wanted to keep the, the incentives very incentive. We're very simple. Right. Um, I'm not in a place where I want to grow this to a point where it's super, super massive. I don't have a reason. I don't care to go to TechCrunch Disrupt. I don't care to be on TechCrunch or Product Hunt. I just care about building something that you guys would appreciate. And and I think people understanding that stuff, where that's as pure as it gets. I think in a space where there's so many new projects coming out, um, I think it, I, at least I hope that people see this as a measure of longevity of a project as like, okay, these guys, like, they're not just here to make a quick buck. Like this, like he, like there's a deep passion to this. Um, he's here because he loves creating these things. Um, and his fundraising is strongly tied to his capacity to create things that you guys will enjoy. There's no nebulous behind the scenes, you know, you know, fundraising system that he has to align himself to, which is not a problem for most ideas, right? But I think for what uh, Proof of Beauty is, I don't think that's the best thing. Yeah, 100%. I was also going to say it also feels like a breath of fresh air, you know, in a in a, an environment that, you know, can be very competitive, like you guys are just here to create. And that's, that's so pure and fresh in so many <laughs> ways. <laughs> Yeah. Right, so um, this last segment that we have, David, is what I call explain your tweet. This is where I go through your Twitter and I pull out some interesting or cryptic or funny tweets. You don't tweet that much, which almost makes your tweets more valuable because they're <laughs> so few and far between. So I'm going to pull out a few. The most recent one I've got for you is and this might might actually still be your most recent tweet was from April 4th. It was actually a retweet of Crypto Corgis. Are you, you know, a big fan of crypto corgis? Are you a user, and are you more of a crypto corgis fan now than a crypto kitties fan? Your OG, <laughs> your OG loyalty. Where, where do you stand with that? Yeah, uh, bright color. Um, one of my ex coworkers, one of, well, I guess one of my, I guess informally one of my mentors when I was at Xerox, he started crypto corgis, um, and we both were personally pretty. Uh, we both were NFT kind of people. Um, when we were still at Xerox, but he kind of started Crypto Corgis and, and I wanted to support it. So that's why I mainly retweeted it. But, you know, I, I personally really like a lot of parts of Crypto Corgis. Um, we chatted a ton about the design of, of, of that project. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, interesting things that has happened. Um, he has this idea of like 
uh, I guess, a, what do you want to call it? Like a rolling window uh, um, where a Corgi is, um, um, is, you know, what do you call it? Mintable. And then within 256 blocks, if it's not minted, it quote unquote dies. And so people are like, save it from death by minting it. And, and it, you know, so I, I think it drove a lot of FOMO. The community was pretty cool to see. So yeah, like there's, it was mostly, I think, um, I liked the thinking. I kind of helped out a little bit and somebody I deeply, you know, respected created it. <laughs> and, um, like I personally quite like the Corgis. Um, I personally haven't followed kitties recently enough to know all of the complex traits involved, but Corgis is a lot simpler. So I approached that and also he created a Corgi specifically for proof of beauty. So that kind of also won me over. So um. very cool. I'm more of a dog person too myself, <laughs> um, and I think that's a really cool concept. That it's almost like, you know, like you've got these corgis at the shelter, and you have to adopt them, or else they get sent to the no kill shelter, and <laughs> that's it for them. So yeah. save a corgi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, and then the next tweet I have. This is all the way back from October 9th, twenty twenty. You tweeted with the lower gas fees today and not wanting to be my own artwork. Well, artwork NFT giveaway, whatever you want, one per person. Just retweet with the one you want and an address, and I'll send it your way on through the weekend. I was just wondering, are you still making your own art, like non proof of beauty art, and are you still like selling your own art on? I think this was on Rarible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely not the case now. This was, you know, before like I proof of beauty was was still like ten like five percent done at that time. Um, but I was creating generative art, and you know I wasn't sure certain at the time of like how I wanted to create crypto art, and so I was just like, let me just do the simplest thing, which was put it on rareable. But um, soon to realize that uh, unless you have a lot of followers. Um, and know the right people, you really can't sell your own artworks on Rarible unless they are of a very specific style, right? Which is right now a derivation of Beeple or a derivation of Peck, right? It's it's pretty much like within those realms, but like just, yeah, like I I think through that experience of selling my own things, I realized that like if you were to do generative art or do your own thing, you got to you got to really give it something special. And I was kind of just giving them away because it was just like, well, it's no point of me holding them. But the deeper lesson was if I were to do what I wanted to do, which is create generative art, um, I got to house it in a very special way. And that was the impulse to get Proof of Beauty going. Um, so, yeah, that was in many, many ways like a, a, realiza- a big seminal real, uh, realization on my part. Um, how do you survive within the crypto art ecosystem? Wow. I didn't even realize there was that much meaning behind it, but I'm glad I called it out. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, David, for coming on the podcast. And I apologize for keeping you past time. Hopefully you don't have another meeting right after this. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. Before you go, last thing, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, and then where they can go to learn more about Proof of Beauty and also to make sure that they don't miss the season one launch. Yeah, uh, my personal Twitter is just Dave4506. Uh, you can find me there and my DMs are open. Uh, ping me there or even the Proof of Beauty Twitter. Uh, but if you want to find all the Proof of Beauty links, just go to pob.studio 
Um, that's our website. Um, go on there and it'll pretty much outbound you to everything that is of related to Proof of Beauty. And I'm a lot more active with Proof of Beauty um, than on my personal social life, uh, social digital worlds. Always open to DMs and, and hearing other people's thoughts and ideas within crypto at large. Um, so yeah, find me there. Awesome. Thanks again so much, David. I can't wait to see where Proof of Beauty goes and for the season one launch to come out. And so I can mint my own NFT uh -huh. as well in season one. Um, thank you listeners for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.